what an emotional journey we have been on this morning already. It's like one moment you're cringing at my terrible joke, and then the next moment you're reminded that you're going to die. <laughs> the way that you want to start a Sunday morning. Uh, well, welcome. My name is Johnny Morrison. I'm one of the pastors here. If you are new, as Heather said, it's good to have you. Love to get connected with you. We are, right now, in a series entitled Strange Joy. And the series that we're in is exploring the book of Ecclesiastes. And as you can tell from the teacher's words that were just read to us, the writer of Ecclesiastes is wrestling with heavy questions, heavy themes, heavy topics. This person is wrestling with the heaviness of Life And repeatedly they use the word meaningless, which we've talked about in the last two weeks, is not referencing the futility of existence. It's not trying to name that life has no purpose, but instead that word translates most directly to vapor. And what the writer is naming is that life feels like vapor sometimes, that it feels like chasing the wind, that you're trying to get yourself a hold of it. You're trying to make sense of life. You're trying to like shepherd something. Chasing the wind is the other language the writer uses, and yet it always just kind of feels out of reach, hard to get your hands in, hard to nail down, hard to find your stance in. Life feels like a vapor sometimes. And I feel like in this moment, as we hear these words, they hit different depending on where we are. Like, if life is going well, I think these words are a bit hard to hear, or maybe just, like, don't make any sense. Like, if life is moving in a way that you feel good about, you're like, I feel happy, and I feel like things are progressing the way that I want them to, and my goals are being achieved, and life is pretty secure and pretty normal, and then you're like, wow, these words are weird. It's like just listening to a Panic! at the Disco album. Like, why are we so upset all the time? But then there's other moments my friend Nikki's very mad at me because she really likes Brendan Urie from Panic! at the Disco. She's going to fight me afterwards. But then there's other moments in life, and for all of us, at some level, the moments coming out of COVID are like this, where the comfortable, the normal, has been disrupted. Certainty has been replaced with uncertainty. The Things that felt controllable now feel uncontrollable. Things that we thought we had solid answers to all of a sudden start to feel like enigmas. Like we don't have as good of answers to these questions as we thought we did. And when that happens, like in that moment, where again, I think most of us are at some level coming out of COVID, the words of the teacher hit a little different. I don't know that we'd say they are good words, but they hit different. They resonate at a different level. We thought we could control the world, and now, like the teacher, we feel like it's vapor chasing after the wind. It's for that reason that we wanted to start the year here. It's kind of a heavy way to start the year, but at the same time, like so much of our lives have been disrupted by the experiences of 2020, by even the experiences of the beginning of 2021, that we were like, we want to start in this text that names how vapor-like life can be. We wanted to join together in wrestling with those questions and that reality. 
And the teacher of Ecclesiastes starts to provide us with some, maybe you could say unconventional wisdom for unconventional times. You have all this wisdom literature in the Bible. Proverbs is like conventional wisdom for conventional times. It's like if the world is working normally, these are the good precepts to use. And Ecclesiastes is like the dark underbelly of Proverbs. You know, like the world is disrupted. Here is some unconventional wisdom for those moments. And the teacher wants to provide us some of that unconventional wisdom for an unconventional situation. And today the teacher wants to do that I think through a series of difficult questions. You could say that you have to answer the questions to get to the wisdom, but I think more likely it's that the wisdom is part of the questions. These difficult questions that are a part of life, that are a part of what make it feel like vapor that we have to answer. The first question the teacher poses has to deal with time. In Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1, the teacher writes that there is a time for everything. And a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. It's debated, uh, if you like reading biblical scholars on what this moment means, there's some debates about like, is God doing these things? Are these things random? Like, how do we understand this? But what there is no debate about is it how it feels. Meaning how it feels to live in a world where certain moments feel so beyond control. To live in a moment where the seasonality of life feels like it is outside of my ability to predict it, to control it, to get my hands on it. And no matter how hard I prepare, no matter how hard I try, no matter how much management I do, no matter how much effort I put into my existence, the biggest events of my life will almost always occur outside of my control. Births and deaths. They're always outside of my ability to control them. Both the good and the bad, the biggest moments, feel just out of reach. I think all of us feel this coming out of 2020. Because like most people I talk to, we started the year feeling like, yes, 2020, it's going to be the one. We had like raging 20s, New Year's party, we're like, yes, this is the moment. And then almost immediately, those things just crashed around us as we realize that there is a seasonality, a rhythm to life that is beyond our control. There's a couple who come here who shared their story a couple of months ago in Missio Voice named Max and Maria. And they started 2020 with this like amazing goal of a three-month sabbatical and then moving to Europe. So they begin their sabbatical. And where do they begin their sabbatical? Oh, Asia. At what moment? Right when COVID breaks out in Asia. And so all of a sudden, their trip is like 100% disrupted. They're like right in the middle of this like global pandemic when no American has really experienced a global pandemic. So they flee from there to Europe because they're like, oh, we'll be safe here. But then it spreads to Europe. So then they spend thousands more dollars than they thought they were going to have to because borders are being shut down to get back to the United States. They thought they were going to move to Germany after that, but then all international moving gets shut down. And so they end up working for a German company here while they were supposed to be somewhere else. And then a year later, uh, well, they live here. And they own a home and a dog, and Germany is no longer on the table at all. What the writer of Ecclesiastes is naming is that's kind of how life is sometimes. It's not always bad. 
It's not always good either. Sometimes good and bad and beautiful things happen, but they happen in a way that feels outside of our control. And so the teacher asks, well, what do workers gain from all their toil then? Like if this is the way that life is, and if you can't control when you die or when you're born, and you can't control all the most important moments in your life, then why do you work so hard? What do you gain from your striving, your chasing, your management, or your control? The question the writer is asking is, how do we live in time? How do we live in time when time feels fickle and fragile and random and outside of our control? Teacher moves on to another question. And this one has to do with justice. The teacher asks us, or the teacher says, I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. Teacher saying, as I looked at the world systems, I looked at governments, I looked at institutions, and what was right was wrong, and everything was upside down. And then they go on to say, and I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. But I also saw that power was on the side of the oppressors, and guess what? They have no comforter. The systems of justice are wrong and broken, and yet they are wrong and broken for everyone, is what the teacher is noticing. The oppressed have no comforter, but in a different way, he's like, the oppressors have no comforter. He's like, so what is the point of any of this? These systems are upside down, but for what? They hurt everyone. And again, I think we have seen maybe more clearly in our own lives this year, in 2020, the reality of this feeling and this sentiment. In the murder of George Floyd or Breonna Taylor, in the protests of the summer, the storming of the Capitol, the election, the impeachment, the impeachment, it feels like justice and wickedness have been flipped. And yet, for what? Because you're like, there's no comfort anywhere. What is the gain of it? What is the purpose of it? I've read this quote a lot, but I think it names the sentiment really well. It's a quote from James Baldwin's book, The Fire Next Time, which is a letter to his nephew about being black in America in 1963. And James Baldwin says this, Please try to remember that what they believe, as well as what they do and cause you to endure, does not testify to your inferiority, but to their inhumanity and fear. What Baldwin is saying is that when justice and wickedness are flipped, everyone is devoured in the process. There is no comfort for anyone, no hope for anyone. And the teacher is seeing this, and so it leads the teacher to ask, well, where is justice and comfort then? Where is justice? Where is comfort? Where is peace? And the teacher asks us a third question. Final question comes in verse 4 of chapter 4. The teacher says, And I saw all the toil and all the achievement that one does spring from a person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, the chasing after the wind. This is a hard statement. And I think even hearing it, we might bristle. Like, I don't just do things out of envy. 
But there's something here that we have to pay attention to. And if I think if we think about long enough, it starts to resonate with us. And, and, and here's where we'll begin to think about it. In life, we learn how to live and what to live for by watching, by paying attention to the world and people around us. We learn to live by imitation. We learn value and character from the people around us. Children learn what love is, right, from being loved and watching parents love or not love. And that's what gives us our picture of love or what isn't love. And sometimes that actually causes conflict in our own lives, right? We have values and then a way of living. And then there's a gap between those two things. Brene Brown says you have to mind the gap between your values and your actions because it creates a dissonance in us because our actions win out over our teaching. We learn how to live in this world by watching and imitating. But when imitation meets fear, it becomes envy. When imitation is marred by fear, we begin to worry, like, is there enough for us? We've learned that these things matter, that this is what respect looks like, or this is what being okay looks like, or this is what love looks like, or this is what success looks like, or this is just what it looks like to be okay as like a human. And then when it's tinged with fear, that means that there's like a a sense of scarcity or a sense of limits to it. And so for me to feel okay, or for me to have a sense of self, or for me to feel like I am loved means I have to compete with those around me because there's a limit to how much love or success or accomplishment or respect or whatever it is for me to get. So all learning through imitation all the time, but when it's struck by fear, then it becomes envy. I think this example is used to death, but it's still relevant that like we look at Instagram, see a picture of like a beautiful life, and so often that image somehow tinges us with a bit of fear, like as though that means something about the lives that we're living. But why? Because imitation has been mixed with fear. Somehow some other beautiful picture of reality means something is inadequate about our own. And for the teacher, this like reality, this sense of like fear and imitation, it produces anxiety. The teacher says, better one handful of life with tranquility than two with toil and chasing the wind. Like that's what this produces in us when we have these visions of what life is supposed to be like and yet it speaks to us about fear and our own inadequacy. Then what we do is we chase and we run and we work and yet it is striving after the wind. It is vapor. It is nothing. We toil, but have no tranquility. This leads us to our third question, which is, what will give us a sense of self? Where do we find a sense of self? Where do we find ourselves outside of the anxiety and the envy? Or maybe you could ask it a different way, which is like, how do we become free as humans? These three questions that the teacher is asking make life feel like a vapor. Because we spend our lives trying to answer them, but most of the answers that we have to these questions, well, they feel like chasing the wind. 
Maybe they ground us for a moment. Maybe they give us a sense of security for a moment. But so often then what we put our feet on feels like it's like always slipping or it becomes chasing the wind. This is the teacher is naming in this moment. Not that life is meaningless, but that our best answer to life's questions feel like vapor. And yet, something in us needs to answer them. That's also part of the fascinating vapor-like reality of life, is that the answers that we get to these questions feel like vapor, and yet we can't just give up on asking them and trying to find answers to those questions. This is what the teacher says, that God has set eternity into the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. It's like something in us is searching for answers. Something in us is, is looking for a, a way to make sense of time and justice and ourselves and the way the world works and the way that we relate to one another. And yet it always feels like it's just out of reach. We search, but our best answers feel like vapor. And not just us. I feel like we can name that most of the teachers and philosophies and like pursuits of our own world are trying to answer these and other questions. And yet those answers feel like vapor. The Apostle Paul says this also in 1 Corinthians 1.20, writing to this small church, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Paul's just naming it like our best answers, our best kept wisdom feels like foolishness, like vapor in this space. So what do we do? What do we do with those questions, that existential angst right at the bottom of our heart that seems to never go away, that seems to never be satiated, that seems to always just be out of reach? But Paul tells us what the teacher does not. If you continue on in 1 Corinthians 1 to verse 30, this is what the Apostle Paul says. It is because of God that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us the wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. What does that mean? Well, this is going to sound uncharacteristically cheesy for me to say, but the questions the teachers are asking, according to Paul, lead to one place, the person of Jesus. Paul will say the same thing when preaching to the Athenians in the book of Acts, saying it this way, God intended that we would seek him and perhaps even reach God and find God, though God is not far from any of us. For in God we live and move and have our being. See, in Jesus we actually find our truest sense of self. Because we are invited to imitate the one who gives perfect love. This is radically different than the journey that the teacher has been on because in Jesus, all fear is displaced and rivalry undone. 
done. And so as we follow perfect love, it's like we are invited into being fully human. And in Jesus, we discover justice and comfort because only in Christ is the dividing wall of hostility actually removed. And only in Christ are systems both broken and yet human hearts healed. There's no duality between systems and people in the person of Christ. No, all of them find a resonance in him. And in Jesus, we find our own place in time. We're not trapped in the fickleness of what is uncontrollable, but we are instead named participants in the unfolding beauty of God's work. Waiting not for time to pass, but actually for the world to catch up where God already is. Now, that doesn't mean that these questions lose weightiness or they don't feel heavy or challenging or trying. That isn't what the New Testament would ever say about being a follower of Jesus. They still press in on us. But the difference is that in Jesus, those questions begin to find their ground. In a second, the band is going to sing us a song. That I, it has this lyric that I just think is really beautiful that says this, Kingdoms become, Kings become fools for you kingdoms to ruin for you. Vapor finds ground in you. There is like a home for these questions to belong in, a sense of rootedness for these questions to belong in, a place or a story that begins to offer some sense of where these questions might live. And as those questions begin to find grounding in the person of Jesus, well, then they also begin to reorient how we as the people of Jesus live in this world. The writer of Ecclesiastes does not offer full answers to the questions that he asks, but he does offer what they consider a better way of living. That's kind of the teacher's point throughout the whole book, is that there is actually a better way to inhabit the vapor. But for us, in Jesus, that better way actually becomes how we live with Jesus in the vapor. So in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 12, the teacher tells us this, I know there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction all their toil. This is the gift of God. And then the teacher goes on to add in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 9, that two are better than one. And so the summation of these two chapters for the writer of Ecclesiastes is eat and drink and do something you like with the people you like. Eat and drink, do something you like with the people you like, which is good wisdom at any moment, at any time. But as we find grounding in the person of Jesus, I actually think these simple things begin to take on a whole new weightiness. Because Jesus told us as we eat and as we drink, we actually proclaim his death till he comes. And as we gather together, we actually get to practice the community that Christ is establishing. So as we do these very simple things, these very simple practices, what the Bible would tell us is that we are actually enacting in the real Jesus' work. It's like we embody the way that Jesus grounds us. And in the practice of being grounded in these practices, it's like our own questions find a place to belong, but also 
I think we begin to ask the world around us the same questions. We begin to ask the world around us, how do you live in time? Where do you find justice and peace and a sense of self? When Heather began this series, she ended it by saying that Ecclesiastes sort of dares us to live, and I think that is true, that Ecclesiastes is like daring all of us to real life. But as we see the way Ecclesiastes dares us to real life, as it opens up space for us to have an encounter with Jesus, and I think it also reorients the way we think about it, that it's not just daring us to life, it's an invitation for us to dare the world around us to life. That through the enactment of practices that Jesus has given us that ground us in his story in the midst of this crisis, we actually invite the world to live more deeply, to live for more. That's what we do every week as we gather at the table and small. We dare ourselves to live a little more, to live presently, to live into the story that Jesus is offering, and we also begin to dare one another and the world around us to live for more. So, Missio, let's pray. And then as we continue worshiping, would you, wherever you are, you're, you can't come to the table in the more traditional way, but as you have your little cup and your little thing, would you enter into this moment to find yourself grounded in Jesus. And as you are grounded in Jesus, that doesn't release the heaviness of the questions, but it begins to dare you to live in the midst of them. And it dares you to live in the midst of them when it then leads you to dare the world around you to live for more. Let's pray and then keep worshiping. Jesus, we thank you that you're with us. That in the midst of these questions and in the midst of the kind of like the unknowns and the uncertain and the uncontrollable and the unpredictable, you are with us. And you give ground to the deepest questions that we ask. Sometimes I think that actually makes the, the kind of the weightiness of it more poignant because it feels like there's actually something to wait for. But you promise to wait with us. So God, today as we come to the table and as we continue to sing and as we hear your story, would it give ground to our questions? Would it call us into a, a present life here and now? And would it send us out of this place, daring the world to live with us? In your name we pray. Amen. Miss, you can take communion as you're ready, and then we invite you to continue worshiping. Yeah.